Chapter 18, Part 15 of Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume 2 of A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 18 The Kingship in France. Part 15. We were bound to get a good idea of and understanding of this violent struggle between the two sovereigns of France and Rome, not only because of its dramatic interest, but because it marks an important period in the history of the papacy and its relations with foreign governments. From the tenth century and the accession of the Capetians, the policy of the Holy See had been enterprising, bold, full of initiative, often even aggressive, and more often than not successful in the prosecution of its designs. Under Innocent III it had attained the apogee of its strength and fortune. At that point its motion forward and upward came to a stop. Boniface had not the wit to recognize the changes which had taken place in European communities, and the decided progress which had been made by laic influences and civil powers. He was a stubborn preacher of maxims he could no longer practice. He was beaten in his enterprise, and the papacy, even on recovering from its defeat, found itself no longer what it had been before him. Starting from the fourteenth century, we find no second Gregory the Seventh or Innocent the Third. Without expressly abandoning their principles, the policy of the Holy See became essentially defensive and conservative, more occupied in the maintenance than the aggrandizement of itself, and sometimes even more stationary and stagnant than was required by necessity or recommended by foresight. The posture assumed and the conduct adopted by the earliest successors of Boniface VIII showed how far the situation of the papacy was altered, and how deep had been the penetration of the stab which, in this conflict between the two aspirants to absolute power, Philip the Handsome had inflicted on his rival. On the 22nd of October, 1303, eleven days after the death of Boniface VIII, Benedict XI, son of a simple shepherd, was elected at Rome to succeed him. Philip the Handsome at once sent his congratulations, but by William of Plessian, who had lately been the accuser of Boniface, and who was charged to hand to the new pope, on the king's behalf, a very bitter memorandum touching his predecessor. Philip at the same time caused an address to be presented to himself in his own kingdom and in the vulgar tongue, called a supplication from the people of France to the king against Boniface. Benedict the Eleventh exerted himself to give satisfaction to the conqueror, he declared the colonnas absolved, he released the barons and prelates of France from the excommunications pronounced against them, and he himself wrote to the king to say that he would behave towards him as the good shepherd in the parable, who leaves ninety and nine sheep to go after one that is lost. Nagare and the direct authors of the assault at Agnani were alone accepted from this amnesty. The Pope reserved for a future occasion the announcement of their absolution, when he should consider it expedient. But on the 7th of June, 1304, instead of absolving them, he launched a fresh bull of excommunication against certain wicked men who had dared to commit a hateful crime against a person of good memory, Pope Boniface. A month after this bull, Benedict XI was dead. It is related that a young woman had put before him at table a basket of fresh figs, of which he had eaten and which had poisoned him. The chroniclers of the time impute this crime to William of Nogaret, to the Colonnas, and to their associates at Agnani, a single one named King Philip. 
Popular credulity is great in matters of poisoning, but one thing is certain, namely, that no prosecution was ordered. There is no proof of Philip's complicity, but full as he was of hatred and dissimulation, he was one of those who do their best to profit by crimes which they have not ordered. It is clear that such a pope as Benedict the Eleventh would not do either for his passions or his purposes. He found one, however, from whom he flattered himself, not without reason, that he would get more complete and efficient cooperation. The cardinals, after being assembled in conclave for six months at Perouse, were unable to arrive at an agreement about a choice of pope. As a way out of their embarrassment, they entered into a secret convention to the effect that one of them, a confidant of Philip the Handsome, should make known to him that the Archbishop of Bordeaux, Bertrand de Goth, was the candidate in respect of whom they could agree. He was a subject of the King of England and a late favourite of Boniface the Eighth, who had raised him from the bishopric of Comminges to the archbishopric of Bordeaux. He was regarded as an enemy of France, but Philip knew what may be done with an ambitious man, whose fortune is only half made, by offering to advance him to his highest point. He therefore appointed a meeting with the archbishop. Hearken, said he, I have in my grasp wherewithal to make thee pope if I please, and provided that thou promise to do me six things I demand of thee, I will confer upon thee that honour, and to prove to thee that I have the power, here be letters and advices I have received from Rome. After having heard and read, the Gascon, overcome with joy, says the contemporary historian Villani, threw himself at the king's feet, saying, My lord, now that I know that thou art my best friend, and that thou wouldst render me good for evil, it is for thee to command and for me to obey, such will ever be my disposition. Philip then set before him six demands, amongst which there were only two which could have caused the archbishop any uneasiness. The fourth purported that he should condemn the memory of Pope Boniface. The sixth, which is important and secret, I keep to myself, said Philip, to make known to thee in due time and place. The archbishop bound himself by oath taken on the sacred host to accomplish the wishes of the king, to whom furthermore he gave as hostages his brother and his two nephews. Six weeks after this interview, on the 5th of June, 1305, Bertrand de Goth was elected Pope, under the name of Clement V. It was not long before he gave the king the most certain pledge of his docility. After having held his pontifical court at Bordeaux and Poitiers, he declared that he would fix his residence in France, in the country of Venaison at Avignon, a territory which Philip the Bold had remitted to Pope Gregory X, in execution of a deed of gift from Raymond the Seventh, Count of Toulouse. It was renouncing, in fact, if not in law, the practical independence of the papacy, to thus place it in the midst of the dominions and under the very thumb of the King of France. "'I know the gaseous,' said the old Italian Cardinal Matthew Rosso, dean of the Sacred College, when he heard of this resolution. "'It will be ere long the Church comes back to Italy.' And indeed it was not until sixty years afterwards, under Pope Gregory the Eleventh, that Italy regained possession of the Holy See, and historians call this long absence the Babylonish captivity. Philip lost no time in profiting by his propinquity to make the full weight of his power felt by Clement V. He claimed from him the fulfilment of the fourth promise Bertrand de Goth had made in order to become Pope, which was the condemnation of Boniface the Eighth, and he revealed to him the sixth, that important and secret one which he kept to himself to make known to him in due time and place, and it was the persecution and abolition of the order of the Templars. The pontificate of Clement V at Avignon was, for him, a nine years painful effort, 
at one time to elude, and at another to accomplish, against the grain, the heavy engagements he had incurred towards the king. He found the condemnation of Boniface the Eighth rather an embarrassment than a danger. He shrank, on becoming Pope, from condemning the Pope his predecessor, who had appointed him archbishop and cardinal. Instead of an official condemnation, he offered the king satisfaction in various ways. It was only from headstrong pride and to cloak himself in the eyes of his subjects that Philip clung to the condemnation of the memory of Boniface, and after a long period of mutual tergiversation, it was agreed in the end to let bygones be bygones. The principal promoter of the assault at Adyani, William of Nagrade, was the sole exception to the amnesty, and the Pope imposed upon him, by way of penance, merely the obligation of making a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, which he never fulfilled. On the contrary, he remained, in great favor, about the person of King Philip, who made him his chancellor, and gave him, in Languedoc, some rich lands, amongst others those of Cavisson, Massillard, and Manduel. For Philip knew how to liberally reward and faithfully support his servants. And he knew still better how to persecute and ruin his foes. He had no reason of a public kind to consider the Templars his enemies. It is true that they had given him a merely qualified support on his appeal to the council against Boniface the Eighth, but both before and after that occurrence Philip had shown them marks of the most friendly regard. He had asked to be affiliated to their order, and he had borrowed their money. During a violent outbreak of the populace at Paris in 1306, on the occasion of a fresh tax, he had sought and found refuge in the very palace of the temple, where the chapters general were held and where its treasures were kept. It is said that the sight of these treasures kindled the longings of Philip, and his ardent desire to get hold of them. At the time of the formation of the order in 1119, after the First Crusade, the Templars were far from being rich. Nine knights had joined together to protect the arrival and sojourning of pilgrims in Palestine, and Baldwin II, the third Christian king of Jerusalem, had given them a lodging in his own palace, to the east of Solomon's temple, whence they had assumed the name of poor united champions of Christ in the temple. Their valor and pious devotion had soon rendered them famous in the west as well as the east, and St. Bernard had commended them to the Christian world. At the Council of Troy, in 1123, Pope Honorius II had recognized their order, and regulated their dress, a white mantle, on which Pope Eugenius III placed a red cross. In 1172 the rules of the order were drawn up in seventy-two articles, and the Templars began to exempt themselves from jurisdiction of the Patriarch of Jerusalem, recognizing that of the Pope only. Their number and their importance rapidly increased. In 1130 the Emperor Lothar II gave them lands in the Duchy of Brunswick. They received other gifts in the Low Countries, in Spain, and in Portugal. After a voyage to the west, Hugh de Payon, the chief of the nine Templars, returned to the east with three hundred knights enlisted in his order, and a hundred and fifty years after its foundation, the order of the temple, divided into fourteen or fifteen provinces, four in the east and ten or eleven in the west, numbered, it is said, eighteen or twenty thousand knights, mostly French, and nine thousand commanderies or territorial benefices the revenue of which is calculated at fifty-four millions of francs, about ten and a half million dollars. It was an army of monks, once poor men and hard-working soldiers, but now rich and idle, and abandoned to all the temptations of richness and idleness. There was still some fine talk about Jerusalem's pilgrims and crusades. 
the Pope still kept these words prominent, either to distract the Western Christians from intestine quarrels, or to really promote some new Christian effort in the East. The Isle of Cyprus was still a small Christian kingdom, and the warrior monks, who were vowed to the defense of Christendom in the East, the Templars and the Hospitallers, had still in Palestine, Syria, Armenia, and the adjacent lands, certain battles to fight and certain services to render to the Christian cause. But these were events too petty and too transitory to give serious employment to the two great religious and military orders, whose riches and fame were far beyond the proportions of their public usefulness and their real strength, a position fraught with perils for them. It inspired the sovereign powers of the state with the spirit rather of jealousy than fear of them. In 1303 the king and the pope simultaneously summoned from Cyprus to France the grand master of the Templars, James de Molay, a Burgundian nobleman, who had entered the order when he was almost a child, had valiantly fought the infidels in the east, and fourteen years ago had been unanimously elected grand master. For several months he was well treated, to all appearances, by the two monarchs. Philip said he wished to discuss with him a new plan of crusade, and asked him to stand godfather to one of his children, and Molay was pallbearer at the burial of the king's sister-in-law. Meanwhile the most sinister reports, the gravest imputations, were brooded abroad against the Templars. They were accused of things distasteful, deplorable, horrible to think on, horrible to hear, of betraying Christendom for the profit of the infidels, of secretly denying the faith, of spitting upon the cross, of abandoning themselves to idolatrous practices and the most licentious lies. In 1307, in the month of October, Philip the Handsome and Clement V had met at Poitiers, and the king asked the Pope to authorize an inquiry touching the Templars and the accusations made against them. James de Molay was forthwith arrested at Paris with a hundred and forty of his knights. Sixty met the same fate at Beaucaire, many others all over France, and their property was put in the king's keeping for the service of the Holy Land. On the 12th of August, 1308, a papal bull appointed a grand commission of inquiry charged to conduct, at Paris, an examination of the matter according as the law requires. The archbishops of Canterbury in England, and of Mayence, Cologne, and Trove in Germany, were also named commissioners, and the Pope announced that he would deliver his judgment within two years, at a general council held at Vienne in Dauphiny, territory of the empire. Twenty-six princes and laic lords, the dukes of Burgundy and Brittany, the counts of Flanders, Nevers, Auxerre, and the count of Talleyrand de Perigord, offered themselves as the Templars' accusers, and gave powers of attorney to act in their names. On the 22nd of November, 1309, the Grand Master, Molay, was called before the commission. At first he firmly denied all that his order had been accused of, Afterwards he became confused and embarrassed, and said that he had not the ability to undertake the defense of his order, that he was but a poor, unlettered knight, that the Pope had reserved to himself the decision in the case, and that for his part he only wished the Pope would summon him as soon as possible before him. On the 28th of May, 1310, five hundred and forty-six knights, who had declared their readiness to defend their order, appeared before the commission, and they were called upon to choose protectors to speak in their name. We ought also, then, said they, to have been tortured by proxy only. The prisoners were treated with the uttermost rigor and reduced to the most wretched plight. Out of their poor pay of twelve deniers per diem they were obliged to pay for their passage by water, to go and submit to their examination in the city, and to give money besides to the man who undid and riveted their fetters. 
In October 1310, at a council held at Paris, a large number of Templars were examined, several acquitted, some subjected to special penances, and fifty-four condemned as heretics to the stake, and burned the same day in a field close to the Abbey of St. Anthony, and nine others met the same fate at the hands of a council held at Senlis the same year. They confessed under their tortures, says Bousset, but they denied at their execution. The business dragged slowly on. Different decisions were pronounced, according to the place of decision. The Templars were pronounced innocent on the 17th of June at Ravenna, on the 1st of July at Mayence, and on the 21st of October at Salamanca, and in Aragon they made a successful resistance. Europe began to be wearied at the uncertainty of such judgments and at the sight of such horrible spectacles and Clement V felt some shame at thus persecuting monks who, on more than one occasion, had shown devotion to the Holy See. But Philip the Handsome had attained his end. He was in possession of the Templar's riches. On the 11th of June, 1311, the Commission of Inquiry terminated its sittings, and the report of its labors concluded as follows. For further precaution, we have deposited the said procedure, drawn up by notaries in authentic form, in the treasury of Notre-Dame, at Paris, to be shown to none without special letters from your holiness. The council-general, announced in 1308 by the Pope, to decide definitively upon this great case, was actually opened at Vienne in October 1311. More than three hundred bishops assembled, and nine Templars presented themselves for the defense of their order, saying that there were at Lyon, or in their neighborhood, fifteen hundred or two thousand of their brethren, ready to support them. The Pope had the nine offenders arrested, adjourned the decision once more, and on the 22nd of March in the following year, at a more secret consistory, made up of the most docile bishops and a few cardinals, pronounced, solely on his pontifical authority, the abolition of the Order of the Temple, and it was subsequently proclaimed officially, on the 3rd of April, 1312, in presence of the King and the Council, and not a soul protested. The Grand Master, James de Molay, in confinement at Gizor, survived his order. The Pope had reserved to himself the task of trying him, but disgusted with the work, he committed the trial to ecclesiastical commissioners assembled at Paris, before whom Molay was brought, together with three of the principal leaders of the temple, survivors like himself. They had read over to them, from a scaffold erected in the forecourt of Notre-Dame, the confessions they had made but lately under torture, and it was announced to them that they were sentenced to perpetual imprisonment. Remorse had restored to the Grand Master all his courage. He interrupted the reading and disavowed his avowals, protesting that torture alone had made him speak so falsely, and maintaining that, of his grand order, not he wist against honor and the laws of Christ. One of his three comrades in misfortune, the commander of Normandy, made aloud a similar disavowal. The embarrassed judges sent the two Templars back to the provost of Paris, and put off their decision to the following day but Philip the Handsome, without waiting for the morrow, and without consulting the judges, ordered the two Templars to be burned the same evening, March 11, 1314, at the hour of Vespers, in Ile de la Cité, on the side of the present Place Dauphine. A poet chronicler, Godfrey of Paris, who was a witness of the scene, thus describes it. The Grand Master, seeing the fire prepared, stripped himself briskly. I tell just as I saw. He bared himself to his shirt, light-heartedly and with a good grace, without a whit of trembling, though he was dragged and shaken mightily. They took hold of him to tie him to the stake, and they were binding his hands with a cord, but he said to them, 
Sirs, suffer me to fold my hands a while, and make my prayer to God, for verily it is time. I am presently to die, but wrongfully, God wot. Therefore woe will come, ere long, to those who condemn us without a cause. God will avenge our death. It was probably owing to these last words that there arose a popular rumour, soon spread abroad, that James de Molay, at his death, had cited the Pope and the King to appear with him, the former at the end of forty days, and the latter within a year, before the judgment-seat of God. Events gave a sanction to the legend, for Clement V actually died on the 20th of April, 1314, and Philip the Handsome on the 29th of November, 1314. The Pope, undoubtedly uneasy at the servile acquiescence he had shown towards the King, and the King expressing some sorrow for his greed and for the imposts, maltolti, malatolta, or blackmail, with which he had burdened his people. End of chapter 18, part 15